भागवते वासुदेवाय ओम नमो भगवते वासुदेवाय ओम नमो भगवते वासुदेवाय ओम ज्ञानतिमरंदनाशलाकाय चक्षुर्मीता जैना तस्मय श्री गुरव नम I was born in the darkest ignorance and my spiritual master opened my eyes with the torch of knowledge. I offer my respectful obeisances unto him. Shri Chaitanya Manovistam Stapitam Jena Bhutale Swayam Rupa Kadamayam Tadatitswa Padantikam When will Srila Rupa Goswami Prabhupada who has established within this material world the mission to fulfill the desire of Lord Chaitanya give me shelter under his lotus feet? I offer my respectful obeisances unto the Vaishnav devotees of the Lord. They are just like desire trees and can fulfill the desires of everyone. And they are full of compassion for the fallen conditioned souls. Jai Shri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nityananda Shri Advaita Gadadhar Shri Vasadi Gaura Bhaktavrinda I offer my respectful obeisances unto Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Lord Nityananda, Sri Advaita, Gadadhar Pandit, Sri Vastakur, and all the devotees of Lord Chaitanya. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. I pray that Sri Sri Radha Kalachanji, Sri La Prabhupada, and Sri La Gurudev. Use me as an instrument so that their message can flow through me to give me the words to serve the Vaishnavas listening. Today is Tuesday, October 5th, 2021. I am Jay Shri Radhe and we are reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 1, Creation, Chapter 10, Departure of Lord Krishna from Dwar- for Dwarka, Text 4. Kamam vavarsha parjanya Sarva kama dukha mahi Sisichu sma vrajan gava Paya sodhas patir mudha Kamam vivasha parjanya Sarva kama dukhamai Sishu chug smag prajan kava Payoso dasvatir mudha Kamam vavarsha parjanya Sarva kama dukha mahi Sishichu smak smagarn gava Paya sodhas patir mudha Kamam vavarsha parjanya 
ಸರ್ವಕಾಮಘಾಮಿ ಎವ್ರಿಥಿಂಗ್ ನೀಡೆಡ್ ವರ್ಷಾವರ್ಡ್ ಸರ್ವ ಎವ್ರಿಥಿಂಗ್ ನೆಸೆಸಿಟೀಸ್ Ugha, producer, Mahi, the land, Sisushjasma, moisten, Rajan, pasturing grounds, Gava, the cow, Payasha, Udhasvati, due to swollen milk bags, Mudha, because of a joyful attitude. Translation and purport by His Divine Grace A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Srila Prabhupada. During the reign of Maharaj Yudhisthira, the clouds showered all the water that people needed and, that, and the earth produced all the necessities of humans in profusion. Due to its fatty milk bag and cheerful attitude, the cow used to moisten the grazing ground with milk. Purport. The basic principle of economic development is centered on land and cows. The necessities of human society are food grains, fruits, milk, minerals, clothing, wood, etc. One requires all these items to fulfill the material needs of the body. Certainly one does not require flesh and fish or iron tools and machinery. During the regime of Maharaj Yudhisthira, all over the world, there were regulated rainfalls. Rainfalls are not in the control of the human being. The heavenly king Indradev is the controller of rains, and he is the servant of the Lord. When the Lord is obeyed by the king and the people, are un- and the people under the king's administration, there are regulated re- rains from the horizon, and these rains are the causes of all varieties of production on the land. Not only do they... Not only do regulated rains help ample production of grains and fruits, but when they combine with astronomical influences, there is ample production of valuable stones and pearls. Grains and vegetables can sumptuously feed a person and animals. And a fatty cow delivers enough milk to supply a person sumptuously with vigor and vitality. If there is enough milk, enough grains, enough fruit, enough cotton, enough silk, and enough jewels, then why do the people need cinemas, houses of prostitution, slaughterhouses, etc.? What is the need of an artificial, luxurious life of cinema, cars, radio, flesh, and hotels? Has this civilization produced anything but quarreling individually and nationally? Has this civilization enhanced the cause of equality and fraternity by sending thousands of people into a hellish factory and the war fields at the whims of a particular man. It is said here that the cows used to moisten the pasturing land with milk because their milk bags were fatty and the animals were joyful. Do they not require, therefore, proper protection for a joyful life being fed with a sufficient quantity of grass in the field? Why should people kill cows for their selfish purposes? 
Why should a person not be satisfied with grains, fruits, and milk, which combined together can produce hundreds and thousands of palatable dishes? Why are there slaughterhouses all over the world to kill innocent animals? Maharaj Parikshit, grandson of Maharaj Yudhisthir, while touring his vast kingdom, saw a dark man attempting to kill a cow. The king at once arrested the butcher and chastised him sufficiently. Should not a king or executive head protect the lives of the poor animals who are unable to defend themselves? Is this humanity? Are not the animals of a country citizens also? Then why are they allowed to be butchered in organized slaughterhouses? Are these the signs of equality, fraternity, and nonviolence? Therefore, in contrast with modern advanced civilized form of government, an autocracy like Maharajudistu's is by far superior to so-called democracy, in which animals are killed and a person less than an animal is allowed to cast votes for another less than animal person. We are all creatures of material nature. In the Bhagavad Gita, it is said that the Lord himself is the seed-giving father and the material nature is the mother of all living beings in all shapes. Thus, mother material nature has enough foodstuff both for animals and for humans. By the grace of the Father Almighty, Sri Krishna, the human being is the elder sibling of all, the li- all other living beings. They are endowed with intelligence more powerful than animals for realizing the course of nature and the indications of the Almighty Father. Human civilizations should depend on the production of material nature without artificially attempting economic development to turn the world into a chaos of artificial greed and power only for the purpose of artificial luxuries and sense gratification. This is but the life of dogs and hogs. Very long and interesting purport. Srila Prabhupada puts forth so many interesting questions for us to answer. I thought I would take it back down to the basics. He's comparing human life and the value of human life versus animal life. And he ends with, if we act in such a way just for our own sense gratification, that is but the life of dogs and hogs. But if we look at the way that animals live, animals live according to their own nature, according to instincts, especially animals in the wild. So in Bhagavad Gita 3.33 it says, Even a person of knowledge acts according to their own nature, for everyone follows the nature they have acquired from the three modes. And this applies to animals especially, and we can see it more clearly in animals. Dogs only mate when the female's in heat, and they only mate for the purposes of having a litter of puppies. They don't mate just purely for sense gratification, and they don't mate at any time. Right? They only mate at the times that they will be able to procreate. Especially in the wild, animals eat only when they're hungry. They eat the food that's meant for them. Right? Domesticated animals are a different story. Like I have a puppy. I've told many stories about my dog. But she eats everything. Like she eats my food if I let her eat, you know, what I eat, and I do, because it's nice for her to have some prasadam. She also wants to eat the cat's food, and she wants to eat the bird's food. She just wants to eat everybody's food. The cat, my cat, is very particular. He will only eat 
what's meant for him to eat. He doesn't eat anybody else's food. He doesn't eat human food. He only eats his cat food and only a certain type of it. So you can see he's a little bit more in tune to what nature would allow him to eat. Now, one of the things he eats that he wouldn't normally get in nature is maha sweets. So sometimes I like to bring him maha sweets. So it's the only human food he eats is maha sweets. But you can see that he eats what he's supposed to eat. He sleeps when he's supposed to sleep. All of the entities are like that, actually. You know, A bear sleeps during the winter when they're supposed to sleep, whereas humans, we sleep nighttime, daytime. Sometimes I don't sleep at night, and I sleep during the day, and sometimes, you know, it's like my sleep schedule's all off. We have lights that artificially keep us up. You know, we can extend our days longer now because we have lights. Back when we didn't have lights, you couldn't do much in the dark, so you had no choice but to sleep. Um, and the other thing that I think humans and animals have in common is the need for love, right? The need for a sense of belonging. A lot of animals run in packs, like dogs run in packs for safety, um, lions run in packs. So there's some animals that run solo, but there's some animals that run in you know, packs, litters, they run together because they have that sense of family. Birds, you know, fly together. They they guide each other. And there's a few, like, there's a study that was done on plants, which I think is really interesting, where they had, you know, I think they had three plants. One was just getting water. And the other two were getting water, you know, well, one was getting water, nutrients, all of them were getting water and nutrients. And they were all facing the sun, so they all got the sun. And one of the plants was fed, like, um, speaker or headphones or earphones that would say positive things. You're a great plant, you're beautiful, it's a great day. All these positive things were being fed to the plant. And another plant was told mean things. You're ugly. You're not going to amount to anything. You know, it's a horrible day. This is horrible conditions. And surprisingly enough, the plant that didn't have any sound coming to it did okay. It had nice leaves coming through. The plant that had all the positive words was thriving. I mean, it was full, it was taller, it was doing really well. And the plant that had the mean words didn't have any leaves. It wasn't even growing. So we can see that all living entities want to have this pleasant experience. By nature, the soul is, you know, full of pleasure and bliss. So all living entities want to experience that, not just humans. And we all have that survival instinct, right? Eating, mating, defending, um, eating, wait, no, sleeping. We talked about that. So the survival instinct, it's kind of like the defending. Another interesting thing about plants, when I was in Costa Rica, I learned about this tree. They call it the walking palm. And it does, it literally walks over to get more sun over time. So what it does is that 
you know, it's in the forest, it's got, it's in a place that gets sun, but as the forest grows around it, it starts to seek places that it can get more sun, so it throws out its roots further out, like two, three feet away, and then slowly it inches over to where the roots are. And so it walks, like over the course of a few months, a couple of years, the tree will be in a totally different location than when it was first planted or when it first appeared. So we can see this instinct for survival is strong in animals. It's also strong in us, but sometimes we can cover it up with so many other things. And it's interesting when we see how animals, when they're domesticated, they tend to take on some more of our human-like qualities. You know, they, um, they may not be any more on the sleep schedule that they're on. They tend to take on the human sleep schedule. And so Prabhupada's point, and he makes over and over again, is that humans, the difference between humans and animals is our propensity to think, to um, seek higher knowledge, to seek more than just eating, mating, sleeping, defending. Whereas animals, no matter how much they're domesticated and with us, they're not going to get above their instinctual survival and you know living tendencies. So for us humans, when we know better, we have to do better. So as we start to learn this information, we want to do better. And where do we learn this information? We learn it from the Bhagavad Gita. There are some major lessons that we can sum up from the Bhagavad Gita. We're not this body. We're spirit soul. And just to quote a few, because this concept is pervasive throughout the Bhagavad Gita, but just to quote a few verses that um, really highlight this, Bhagavad Gita 2.13, Krishna says, As the embodied soul continually passes in this body from childhood to youth to old age, the soul similarly passes into body into another body at death. A sober person is not bewildered by such a change. And then in 2.16, he says, Those who are the seers of the truth have concluded that of the non-existent, the material body, there is no endurance, and of the eternal, the soul, there is no change. This they have concluded by studying the nature of both. So we're not this body, we're spirit soul, and the body is temporary. The body dies, but the soul never dies. So that's one of the big lessons in the Bhagavad Gita. And it's important because we have to, that's like the foundational lesson of our journey of spiritual progress, of attaining surrender to Krishna, is to realize that we're spirit soul. And a lot of what we do is to help us realize, make that realization. And once we learn that, then all the other lessons of the Bhagavad Gita fall into place, knowing that. The next big lesson is attachment to the body creates misery. Right? And so we, ha- we are attached to this body. We identify as this body. So, you know, I can identify as a woman. I can identify as an Indian woman. I can identify as, you know, a certain age. I was born in a certain place. But this body was born in that place. This body is a certain age. This body is woman. This body is Indian but the soul is none of those things. You know, the soul is pure bliss. It's got no 
ethnicity. It's got no, well, all souls except for Krishna are female. So the gender it has is female. You know, the gender I have is female. So all of us souls are like that. So when we are identifying with the body, we tend to get attached to the body and the material attachments of the body, the family, friends, society. And that creates misery. So again, from Bhagavad Gita 262 and 263, Krishna says, while contemplating the objects of the senses, a person develops attachment for them. And from such attachment, lust develops. And from lust, anger arises. From anger, complete delusion arises. And from delusion, bewilderment of memory. When memory is bewildered, intelligence is lost. And when intelligence is lost, one falls down again into the material pool. So this is the cycle that keeps us attached or mired in this cycle of birth and death. Keeping, you know, coming back to take on another body, to have different attachments, to have different material desires. But we're still in this misery of, you know, of the material world. And it starts with attachment to our senses. You know, we see, we feel, we think, we heat, we taste, we smell, you know, we touch. All these, all these uh, senses create that attachment. And we want, you know, to fulfill certain desires. So that lust develops that. And when they, when our desires are not fulfilled, that's when anger comes into place. And then the third lesson we want to learn is that we act um, according to our prescribed duty with no expectation or attachment to our results. That's another big thing because when we are attached to our bodies, when we identify as our bodies, then we're attached to what comes of it. Right? We want a certain outcome. We want certain people to behave a certain way because that will please us and we'll feel um, good in some ways. You know, like I said, on some levels, all, most of us, what we want is to be loved, to feel like we belong. And so a lot of our attachments and desires come from that, from wanting this feeling of being loved, to feel like we belong. And that's because we are loved by Krishna, and that love is so strong, and we've forgotten it. We've, un, you know, we've kind of covered it up with all of our material desires, and we're really seeking that unconditional love that Krishna provides, but we're finding, we're seeking it in temporary ways that doesn't give us that fulfillment. So our desires are not fulfilled, and that, again, keeps us trapped in that cycle of birth and death. But when we realize that we're not this body, and what this body experiences, you know, we're living in this body, so we have a certain experience that we're experiencing, but it's similar to watching a movie, I'm in this body, and it's this body's experiencing certain things, doing certain things, but it's just like if I was in a movie watching as a third person. That's really what it, it is. It doesn't feel like it because I'm so engulfed in this movie, and I, you know, I feel like everything's happening to me, and it's, and I'm doing these things. But actually, it's just things are happening, and I have my prescribed duties and how to, um, make certain things happen, but they would happen even if I didn't do it. But it's just that by doing it, it helps me realize that I'm serving Krishna if I'm doing it properly. 
So Krishna says in 247 and 248, you have a right to perform your prescribed duty, but you are not entitled to the fruits of action. Never consider yourself the cause of the results of your activities and never be attached to not doing your duty. Perform, perform your duty equiposed, abandoning all attachment to sex, success or failure. Such equanimity is called yoga. So that brings us to our next big lesson, is to be steady and practice equanimity in all situations to all beings. So we want to, in 2.15 Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, the person who is not disturbed by happiness and distress and is steady in both is certainly certainly eligible 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 for liberation. And that's what we want to do. Like, we are acting in our prescribed duties. It may bring results and it may not bring results. But really, our our only attachment should be on in the duty itself. And as I study this more and more, even in you know business and personal development, this actually is a recurring concept of focusing on what I can control, what what it is that I can control. I can control my actions, but I can't control the consequences of those actions. So I just have to make sure that I'm acting in a way that, you know, I guess statistically speaking would give me a certain act reaction, but it may or may not, right? So I always bring it to um, health and weight loss because that's so tangible, right? If I'm, you know, for weight loss, it's really easy. I mean, it's not, it's a simple formula, right? Eat healthy, exercise, manage your stress, sleep well, um, drink plenty of water, you know, those are some things that you can do to lose weight. Now, somebody could be doing all these things, and they may not actually be losing any weight, but they could be getting stronger. You know, they could be building muscles. They could um, be more fit, right? Uh, their heart could be working better. Their, their organs are working better. So the actions are what's actually very important for us to focus on. You know, we chant. I bring this up again. We chant our japa. We have certain things that goals that we're trying to achieve. But at the end of the day, we chant the maha mantra. Chanting japa is when we chant in mantra meditation, the Hare Krishna maha mantra. When we chant, our goal is to chant, right? So it's not that we have some other goal and then once we reach it, we stop chanting. It's that even when we get to the point where we have pure love of Krishna, we're still going to be chanting. It's still the process. It's still part of the goal, and it's the actions to get to the goal. So in the same way, it's anything that we try to establish, any of our prescribed duties, it's all about the action and not so much focusing on the results. Now, we might want certain results. So in that case, you know, you just do... um, this step called plan, do, review. You know, you think about what your actions are, you plan them, you do them, you execute the plan, and then you review. You know, did it work? Do what kind of results did you get? What else can you do differently? What can what you know? What can you do better? What were some of the challenges? So we can always review and see what we can change. But again, it's just a matter of of doing our actions, right? Doing our duty, and. We are looking for certain results, but sometimes we may get better results. I mean, we may get, you know, failure-type results, right? Something that we can learn from. 
And if we're attached to the results, when we get failure, it can be very demoralizing and discouraging. So then we may not continue. Right? Oh, what's the point? I'm a failure. I, you know, why should I continue doing this? It's not going anywhere. But really it's about, okay, what can I learn from this? What can I do differently? You know, if, um, we'll bring it back to Channing Joppa. If I'm having a hard time paying attention and I find that I'm picking up my phone all the time, then how can I change my environment? How can I change certain things that would help me focus more? You know, is it the time of day that I'm chanting my rounds? Is it the location? Is it where I'm sitting? Is it, you know, what kind of distractions are there? So we can review all of these things and change the plan, you know, and then see if that's working and then review again. Um, if you're making a dish, like a prashadam dish, and I'm horrible in the kitchen, so I usually have more things that go bad than actually work. But, you know, when they do work, I'm always like, oh, I should have written that down, right? Because that's kind of like reviewing so that the next time it can come out well. But I also noticed that if I make a dish two or three times and it came out really good, and I start to think, oh, I made this dish really good and it's great. And then the next time I make it, it's horrible. Like, you know, because I think sometimes I might have gotten a little too arrogant or too attached to the results that, oh, I did this and it became really good, instead of focusing so much on what the actions are. So it's really important to have that balance. And then finally, the final lesson in the Bhagavad Gita is to surrender to Krishna. That everything that we do is for him. Everything that we're doing is to reconnect to him, to realize our our um, relationship to Krishna, our unique relationship to Krishna. In Bhagavad Gita 2.49, Krishna says, Keep all abominable activities far distant by devotional service. And in that consciousness, surrender unto the Lord. Those who want to enjoy the fruits of their work are misers. So in order to keep this attachment, um, desires far away from us, we have to engage in devotional service. So it's just it's not just saying, okay, we're just acting for the actions. We're just doing our duties without results. We're not looking for pleasure. It's that... We're doing everything for Krishna. So we're doing it in devotional service. And if we don't, then we're just misers, which is another way of saying we're miserable. Krishna goes on to say in 250, By thus engaging in devotional service to the Lord, great sages or devotees free themselves from the results of work in the material world. In this way, they become free from the cycle of birth and death and attain the state beyond all miseries by going back to Godhead. And that's what we want to do. So we want to engage ourselves in devotional service so that we can free ourselves from the cycle of birth and death, but more importantly, that we can connect back to Krishna. And part of you know this whole process is being compassionate. So... In the purport, Srila Prabhupada talks about how every living being is 
to be cared for in a kingdom, not just the humans, but the animals as well. And that, you know, in Bhagavad Gita 5.18, Krishna says, the humble sages, by virtue of true knowledge, see with equal vision a learned and gentle brahmana, a cow, an elephant, a dog, and a dog eater. So everybody is on some, like, equal platform. There is no friend. There is no foe. Everyone is to be taken care of. Everyone's devotees of Krishna, whether they realize it or not. And so we really want to embody these lessons in the Bhagavad Gita, really learn them. And how can we learn them? By reading, by studying the books, by studying the Bhagavad Gita, the Srimad Bhagavatam. You know, Prabhupada has written so many books for us, and he only requests that we read it. He spent so much of his energy and his time. You know, if we watch that movie, the Hare Krishna film, it's it really when I watched it, it really dawned on me how much importance Srila Prabhupada gave to translating these books, to making sure that we had these books. And, you know, even on his deathbed he was translating. Like that was his final activity above all else. So for us, the least we can do is to read the books, to study them. Srila Prabhupada, in a letter in 1972, he says, Become knowledgeable in Krishna consciousness. I'm requesting all of my students to read my books very seriously every day without fail. And throughout um, his instructions, whether it's the books and the letters and lectures, he gives instructions on how to read the book. He says to read it attentively, to read it carefully, to read it constantly, thoroughly, scrutinizingly, regularly, seriously, penetratingly, profoundly, from every angle of vision. I, I really I dug this one. There are several quotes, but I just got one. It's a letter in 1972, and he says, Encourage the students to read our books throughout the day as much as possible. Give them all good advice how to understand the books and inspire them to study the things from every point of view. So Prabhupada was very encouraging and understand and for us to understand how there can be different points of view for what we're reading for the, so that we can have good conversations with other people and understand what they're going through and how we can relate that to um, the Bhagavad Gita and the Srimad Bhagavatam and the other literatures that he has. And he says to study them and to read them wherever we are and then to read them to please Srila Prabhupada. In several letters, um, and I just quoted one, he says over and over again, I'm glad that you are enjoying reading my books Continue with this process, and gradually you will come to Krishna consciousness. So I would say to you, put aside some time every day to read. You know, start small. Prabhupada said in a couple of places, one to two hours a day. That can be a little overwhelming, right? So start small. I, you know, do 15 minutes a day, but also I listen to lectures, right? So that can add to my reading time or studying time. But it's more than just reading. So I say 15 minutes a day, but, you know, I take on two verses of the Bhagavad Gita 
every day. I would say two purports, because if the verse doesn't have a purport, I read when it does. And I study that purport. I try to understand it. I try to see how it relates to our world today, you know, because there's so much nectar, so much nuggets of knowledge in the Srimad Bhagavad Gita, in the Srimad Bhagavatam, in the purports that are relevant even today, even though these books and lessons are from 5,000 plus years ago. They are still relevant. And we can only know that if we read the books, if we spend time studying the books. You know, he says scrutinizingly. Um, and then he also says to, in a letter in 1975 that we should memorize the purports of his book and then speak them in our own words. So he wants us to really understand and dissect and study and know this knowledge that we can share it in our own way. Because I may have a different way of expressing what I'm learning, and you may have a different way of expressing what you're learning. And we're both learning the same things, but there might be something that's that stuck out to me because it's more important in my life than something else might have, you know, came, you might have come up with a different realization because that's what's going on in your life. And so when I share my realizations, there's somebody that will relate to that and then can say, oh, I can learn this way because I'm not the only one that sees it this way. So there's that camaraderie that can be built if we start to embody and um, embrace Srila Prabhupada's books and teachings and kind of make it our own without changing any of the lessons, without changing the major you know, philosophy, right? We, I might relate it to how I live my life, but it also is um, not different than what's in the books. It's just, it's, it seems like it's different because it's, you know, what's that word? I can think of phenotype, right? When we're talking about genes, um, you have the genus, you have your genes, and then you have your expression of your genes. And the same genes can have two different expressions depending on. Um, environment and what else is going on. So the underlying foundation is the same, but the expression of the foundation can be a little different. And that's where our uniqueness comes in. So, um, yeah, so that would, I would say start small, you know, 15 minutes, two verses, even one verse. You know, if you read one verse of the Bhagavad Gita every day, you would finish it in like a year and three quarters something like that. Um, if you read two verses, you'll finish it in a little less than a year. So I tried to finish it every year, you know, reading two verses a year. And um, I start when Karthik comes, starts. So that's going to be in two weeks. You know, that's another great time to make some extra endeavor for our spiritual progress. And reading can be a good one to add to what you're already doing, you know, find some ways, like it says, wherever you are. And the great thing is, you know, uh, devices, right, iPhones, smartphones, has internet, um, you can access all of Prabhupada's books through the internet. You can access, you can download it or buy it for your phone itself and take it everywhere with you. You know, if you're waiting in the grocery store online, you can pull out your phone and start reading. 
you're, you know, somewhere else, you know, doing something that it may not be convenient to carry a big old book with you like this one, but you can always carry a small device that has your books. So it's another way to incorporate reading. I went a little over today. I think I started late as well. But are there any questions? Do you have any questions for me? So let me just uh, repeat that for the people listening. So uh, the comment was made that he enjoyed the story about the plants with the encouraging words, and that it's a lesson that all parents and can learn could be, to be encouraging for their um, children and be a more positive role model. And I would say not just uh, parents and children, but any like managers, leaders, teachers, anyone that's in that kind of position that yeah, has the um, influence or impact over other people. Yeah. So um, Prabhupada, the other comment is that uh, Prabhupada said, to appreci- in appreciation of me, please read my books. And then um, his point about scrutinizingly and reading it all the time, regularly, constantly. Right. So there's so many different ways. So, I forgot where you started. Um, so we talked about uh, the animals doing, you know, what they're like living according to their nature. So if there's like grain of rice on the floor or in the street, birds will only eat as much as they need, whereas humans will hog it up. And you know, we kind of act from fear, right? We're afraid that we won't have enough for the next day, so let's store up. Whereas the birds rely on, they'll be able to find and forage, and it's fine. Right? And yes, in that way, the lower species um, are actually living more according, you know, according to their nature than humans are. But then we have the ability to intellectualize, to say there's more to life than this, and you know, to start that process of living, you know, where. We're depending on Krishna. So again, when, like I said, when we know better, we can start doing better. Um, and then the next point you made was... Oh, yes, when the king is 
um, living according to uh, Vedic scriptures, religious scriptures, living according to their own nature, and taking care of all the citizens, then the kingdom is thriving and it's full of abundance um, with the rains and the grains and everything is abundant. Um, But when the king is living selfishly for their own pleasure, we don't see that as much. You know, things can, we can have short shortages of rain, we can have shortages of grains, um, things like that. So, yes, definitely. It's hard to imagine that because we don't see it in this day and age. But we have faith that if it was like this, it it would we would have this kind of thriving nature. No one would have anxiety. Yeah, we have so much anxiety these days, right? We have so much um, crime. We have so much shortages. You know, people are starving, homeless. Um, animals themselves, you know, suffering so much. Um, even the cows are suffering so much. And, you know, they have to be tortured in order to produce milk. So they're not happily, freely producing milk. And when they stop producing milk, they immediately get slaughtered. You know, and cows are naturally live about 20 years. Milk cows only live five years because they keep them stressed and they um, keep them pregnant so that they can continue to get the milk. And they pump them full of hormones, and the body is too stressed. That's not how the cow is supposed to live. And so, you know, if they if they uh, die of natural causes, you know, it's five years. And if they stop producing milk, it's around that time as well. So, all right. So then.